when men ask for something or when men say, you know, this should happen, they started at maybe, I don't know, 60% of intensity. Their intensity is at a 60% level and people say, yes, uh, that level of intensity I, I take and yes, I will do what you say. And as women, we are trained to start at 40% of intensity. Hey, if it's not too much trouble, could you right. please just do this thing over mm -hmm. here? And then people don't do it right. when you're in the, what I realized is that sometimes people just don't do it. And so then I would ask at a 60% level of intensity, you know, I would ask the way that a man would ask and still people would not do it. So then I had to go to a 75 or an 80% level of intensity. Hey, I've asked you for this thing twice. I need it by Monday. If not, I'm going to have to talk to so-and-so, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you have to ratchet yep. up the intensity. And at that point, they may or they may not do it. Your chances are better that it will actually get done. Right. But at that point, you are a bitch. That was Betsy Hodges, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is Betsy Hodges, an activist, writer, teacher, and former politician, most notably as mayor of Minneapolis, where she served from 2014 to 2018 in a term that was marked in part by controversial police shootings and their aftermaths during the early years of the Black Lives Matter movement. Betsy speaks openly about her own history of childhood sexual abuse and path to sobriety as a young adult. She's a passionate advocate for social justice and honest dialogue about race in our society. She joined me from Minneapolis. Betsy, thanks for being on the show. You are very welcome. I'm very excited to be here. So we have a, just a, so many topics that I and, and things I'd love to talk to you about with respect to all of your experiences, uh, you know, in politics and during your term as mayor in Minneapolis. Um, so I don't really know where to start uh, per se, but I guess you know, holistically, um, as someone who's been in public life, um, campaigning, city council, you know, uh, your time as mayor. And here we are, you know, and this show is not a, a topical weekly show. You know, this probably won't air for a little while. Uh, but I'd be curious just to get your broad feeling about the state of politics and kind of what's happening in the country. You know, here we are uh, early 2019 from your perspective with all of your experience. You know, I think we've uncovered some things that are always that have always been there. Um, historically speaking, 
the issues that we're grappling with right now have always been with us. Mm -hmm. The question has always been, are we moving towards solutions for them or are we retreating further back into the problem of them? Mm -hmm. And I think now we're in a period where people are both retreating back into the problem, sort of getting into our bunkers, forgetting the humanity of the people that are around us or the people that we're talking about. But at the same time, witnessing that has spurred a whole bunch of people into action. There's so much more organizing happening today than there was, say, five years ago. And there was or always been organizing happening, but so many more people are getting off their couches, are, you know, willing to poke their head out from around the barriers they constructed against how painful some things in our systems can be. And so I find myself vacillating between the despair of what's happening and the hope of what's happening. And I do my best to train my attention to the hope and be part of the solution. Yeah, very well put. It does feel like the mood that one has can go back and forth because I think you're right. There are definitely so many things that have been under the surface and now uh, they've come out in different forms, both in positive action happening, but also in like undeniable, you know, reality that you can't look away from, so to speak. I mean, let, well, let's dive right into one that is, is, you know, very tightly uh, wound up in your experience with respect to sort of the racial issues in the country, police brutality, you know, the sort of, historical, you know, narrative that we've, we have with respect to that and what's been going on since Black Lives Matter, et cetera. You had obviously, uh, as you, when you were mayor, the Jamar Clark shooting, um, and the aftermath that you had to deal with, with protesters and the police department. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about that experience? That was a very intense, um, time and, and things that you took out of that and, and just talk a little bit about what happened. On November 15th, 2015, um, two white police officers shot and killed an African-American man named Jamar Clark in North Minneapolis, which um, right now uh, is a largely African-American, highest poverty part of the city, although it's very diverse racially. And by that evening, uh, demonstrators and activists had occupied the grounds of the 4th Police Precinct, which is a couple blocks away from where Jamar Clark had been shot. And it is in, uh, and it had its own center of gravity to it. It used to be a community center, and at some point the city made the decision to make it a police precinct, which was its own remaining wound in the community. And my goal, I was mayor at the time, and it was at the height of you know, a resurgence of energy and attention on these shootings around the country. And in other cities, we had seen the city response inflame and aggravate already painful, an already painful situation that led to widespread property damage, what some people would call rioting. Um, and my goal every day was to keep everybody as safe as possible, just during that 18 days. And some days we succeeded better than others. Um, but I used the t principles of 21st century policing. As far as I know, I'm the first mayor to really have done that, um, to do my best every day to negotiate a peaceful ending to that occupation. 
through talking with the family, talking with various sections of the demonstrators, working with community, uh, all while doing my best to keep that situation safe, which is an inherently unsafe situation. Um, the fourth precinct uh, is the armor is the is the shooting range, and it has a, a lot of guns and, and ammunition there, and so. Uh, didn't want that overrun by people either because there were people without good intentions coming from other parts of the country to take advantage of the situation. Right. It was personally um, taxing, but that is beside the point. It was uh, politically fraught, and it was a relatively peaceful ending in the end. The so the demonstrators that remained at the end of 18 days did not leave um, of their own accord. There were a lot of people, I think, who wanted to stay longer term. And the aftermath of that, um, it was disruption. And disruption is a very powerful tool. It is not a fine-grained tool. It's not something you could use to do delicate work. Uh, right. But it's a very powerful tool. It created an opening. It created opportunity. And I did my best to use that to accelerate the pace of change in the Minneapolis Police Department that had not always had the support either of the community or members of the city council. But with that level of you know scrutiny, with that level of activism, uh, I could accelerate the pace of investment and the pace of policy change in a way that I could not have done otherwise. And that was, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the fact that when people think about that time period and the officer-involved shootings that happened and cities that handled it very poorly, that Minneapolis is not on the top of that list for most people. Right. It seemed like just from my cursory, you know, research on reporting and different comments made, you know, during, like you said, the aftermath, th there's an element of um, it's difficult to... to to please, you know, obviously everybody, even the folks on the progressive side and the activist side, you know, how did you, how did you feel about um, that, how that played out? And then, uh, you know, obviously it went on and you had another shooting sort of ironically, you know, not a, not a, a black youth, but a, but an Australian woman, you know, a year and a half later, and then you changed police chief. Can you just talk about sort of that, that whole, cause it, it continued and you talked about the, the, you're able to kind of increase the pace of change um, but it's a deeply rooted issue across departments yes. all over the country and, and sort of how you feel like it netted out uh, over the course of the rest of your term. You know, the, the occupation itself was one of those moments where I got to find out a little bit about who I am as a person because I knew, I mean, I had run in 2013 on a platform of racial equity, on a platform of progressive change. I had a lot of the left progressive base supporting me. Uh, they saw me as their mayor. And at the precinct occupation, I knew, I knew what I needed to do if I wanted to keep my job. Like I knew what the politically expedient thing to do was because it was my base out there protesting. Was, I had friends. I literally, I lost friends as a result of this. Right. Um, I knew what I needed to do which was just go out there in solidarity, you know, fist in the air, saying F the police or what have you, and 
that that would be the right kind of signaling for the, you know, the people I had common cause with. I also knew that would be, I also knew that would hamstring my ability to do any sort of change work in the city itself. I knew that throwing every single police officer in the city of Minneapolis under the bus was not a good move for the mayor to make. I'm head of the chain of command. Um, In other words, I knew it wasn't the right thing to do. I knew it was the right thing to do for me politically, but I knew it wasn't the right thing for me to do as mayor or as somebody who actually wanted to make changes in the police department. And so I didn't do it. Um, I didn't do it. I kept trying to negotiate a peaceful ending. Um, I would have sacrificed my ability to do that had I just gone out and joined the protesters. Um, And I worked 18, 20-hour days for 18 days in a row. And it was painful. And the work that I did after that to implement the changes, to say I acknowledge the history. We were doing racial reconciliation work between the community and the police department before uh, Jamar Clark was killed and continued that work afterwards. Um, All of that helped forge tentative relationships and bring some folks back with me in the city. Um, And we got a lot done. I just, I will say, I am proud of the fact Right. That, you know, we changed how psych evaluations are done for police officers. Every officer gets implicit bias training and procedural justice training and crisis intervention training. We changed the sanctity of life policy. All kinds of changes we made. When I left, we had made the most, invested the most in progressive change in a police department of any city in the country. And I'm proud of that to this day. Um, in July of 2017, in the midst of a very heated mayoral campaign, um, a Somali police officer, Officer Noor, shot and killed a white Australian woman named Justine Damon in an alleyway in southwest Minneapolis, which is uh, a wealthier, whiter, richer part of town. And um, it was... I think it was it was a shock to the system for a lot of the neighbors in that area who had not had this issue so close to home for them before. It was the place that I had represented on city council for eight years. It was essentially my neighborhood right. um, for 15 years. And, um, you know, protest happened there. Uh, and a lot of people... I think a lot of people got scared and a lot of people got um, this issue brought home to them in a new way. And I don't think there was a way for them to look at me as someone who had been doing good work. And at the same time, this happened in their neighborhood. And it, you know, played to the worst elements in a number of ways because, you know, there was this rumor that Officer Noor had been fast-tracked through his training that, you know, why was he a police officer? And he had gone through the same training every other police officer had gone through. Um, But it scared people that somehow my, um, you know, played to that element of, see, she had this racial equity agenda, and this is what Right, right. So sort of some sort of corner-cutting you know, um, mm-hmm. quote of something, something that wound up with that yep. situation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. That, you know, uh, having gone through that and obviously this this whole issue, you know, my first my first guest on the podcast, you know, did an incredible one man play all about this issue. Um, yeah. Keith Wallace, if you ever get a chance to see it. Um, and it's obviously been with us for a long, long time in many, many forms and post Ferguson and, you know, post cell phone. It it's you know, you'd like to think most people understand that it's a it's an awakening to a reality that's been around for a long, long time. It's not something new. And obviously it's going to for white people. That's what for I mean. White yeah, yeah, yeah. For, yeah. For the, for I the, have to be clear. This for is sure. not a shock. This has always been a real vibrant, closely held issue for people of color, for indigenous people, for GLBTQ people. Um, this issue of the power dynamic and the misuse of it by police officers and, you know, the history of policing comes out of slavery. This is not lost on on anyone except white people. Right. And, you know, for white people, we are trained not to see it, yeah. right? If white people could fully see whiteness, if we could see how the world was set up in our favor systematically, um, if we could see how much our own lives are hemmed in, made narrow and small by the whiteness that's been slathered on us, systems of race couldn't stand. And so we're, we've been made blind and ignorant on purpose. And it's very uncomfortable to start seeing things that you've never seen before. It's a little bit like the Truman Show. Right. You know, an old reference for anybody. No, that's <laughs> a good reference. <laughs> but it's a little bit like the Truman Show, where one day he wakes up and he finds out that he's been living in this very protected bubble to, you know, to serve him entirely and that there's a bigger world out there that's probably more exciting than the one he's been living in. Yeah. No, what, yeah, what I was, what I was getting at, I guess, was from, uh, you know, having been in a city as close as one can get as a, as a, as a white politician and leader, you know, how do you, um, and, and, and it's something that is, is based in a couple centuries of history, you know, at a minimum, how do you, um, and then you talked about the changes that you guys you were making, and you know it's a, it's a, it's going to take a lot to turn these things around or to evolve them and improve them. How do you now that you you know looking back on it now and looking forward, you know, when you think about solutions or dynamics that you think could accelerate change in this particular instance with policing and these populations, you know, at a, at a high level, what are some of your takeaways or some of your thoughts about? the future and how to, how to make things better, faster. Organizing works. Uh, as someone who was an elected official for 12 years and before that I come out of the organizing community and now seeing what's happening around the country, the midterm elections, policy changes happening at the local level all across the country. I work with groups and cities all across the country now. Organizing works. And one of the ways you know it works is because almost no one funds it. If, if it didn't work, everyone would be funding it. Right. Um, you know, getting together with your neighbors, having human connections, talking to them about what matters to you and what matters to them, and then taking action together and having expectations of each other and of elected officials and other leaders in your community, it works. Um, one of the experiences I had as mayor, one of the things that happened in the wake of the precinct occupation is um, I've been sober for 29 years. I've been sober since I was 19 years old. 
And I, um, you know, I have someone in my life who helps keep me sober, who helps me think through what it takes to stay sober. And I was talking with her and noting um, that that ex- personally, that that experience had scared me and that uh, it had left me with some anger and some resentment toward people who I felt had treated me poorly. And she was very clear with me that the only person being harmed by that residue was me and that I got to let go of that resentment. I got to let go of that fear. And I sat down and I got very quiet with myself because there I was protested um, at events for the entire remainder of my term as mayor. People right. would show up to random things. And that scared me. That's a scary thing. Um, and I think it was meant to be. And I would always offer to sit down with people and talk to them about what they wanted to see and, and how could we work together. And there were just some people who I eventually realized would never sit down and talk to me. And I realized the only conversation I would ever have with them would be them yelling at me as, as they surrounded me on a stage. So I sat down and I got very quiet and I said, okay, what were they saying? If I can set the fear of those moments aside, because most of these people were strangers to me, if I can um, set aside the resentment of whatever I was carrying, what were they actually saying? And one of the messages, you know, one of the key messages they would deliver was, we can police our own neighborhoods. We don't need the police. Get out of our neighborhoods. We can do this ourselves. And For me, it wasn't on the agenda to abolish the Minneapolis Police Department, but the message I could hear was we want to take more responsibility for public safety in our neighborhood. Right. And so in my next budget, I invested over a million dollars in community-based public safety strategies based on just sitting down and getting quiet, including a public budgeting strategy that was just in the areas of town that were experiencing the most violent crime, giving neighbors the money. Um, $250,000 in each neighborhood, which in Minneapolis was a fair amount of money. Right. Um, having them come up with strategies, uh, a, a group of neighbors decided which strategies to invest in, and then City Hall invested in those strategies and tracked what the results were. Uh, it was more complicated than that, and right. Cities United, a great organization, Cities United, that I work with, um, came in and did the technical assistance for that process, but we got some really great results and really great investments in community. And for, there were people who came and advocated for those dollars in my budget who did not support me, but they supported that investment in the budget. And that I knew was a success. Organizing works. You can really move an elected official with organizing, with changing their risk structure, with Make, you know, if you organize an elected official's constituents to support something, that elected official is far more likely to support it. Right. Got it. That's a good, it's a good takeaway. And obviously, in many ways, technology and lots of things about modern life do make it a little bit easier to try to get people connected and to communicate. Um, even though we all walk around looking at our phones, it also feels like it's unlocked the ability to mobilize people and to, sh- to share information and uh, points of view which has clearly been happening around this issue since uh, since 2014 in Ferguson. Yeah. I mean, there's a downside to that because sometimes it, if people don't, it, the upside to it is when it's used to bring people together face-to-face or voice-to-voice um, so people can connect as human beings. That's right. the absolute upside of that capacity to get, you know, 
the students from Parkland, the, the advocates from Parkland, got hundreds of thousands of people to the Washington Mall within months. I mean, that was extraordinary. And yes, the technology made that much easier. The, the downside is the, if it's just you with a mechanical device, it's easy to forget that it's a human being on the other end. And the profound lack of kindness and thoughtfulness and human connection that also exists on those platforms uh, is exacerbating problems rather than solutions. Very much so. So tell me a little bit about what you're uh, focusing on now. You came out of that the election, um, you know, the second one that didn't go, I'm sure, as, as the way you wanted. And uh, what's, what's next for you? What are you focusing on now? You mentioned the Cities United. What's on your yes. agenda? Uh, currently, I work with organizations that work with cities, and I work directly with cities to support effective racial equity around the country. Uh, you know, my, my life is new in that my job used to be very geographically centered on Minneapolis, and now my job is very geographically centered almost everywhere except Minneapolis. And, <clears throat> you know, I do that in a variety of ways. You know, uh, Cities United is a great organization built on creating safe, healthy, hopeful communities for everybody through a reduction in homicides among boys and young men of color, and I'm a senior advisor there, and that is, you know, it's just beautiful work. It's soul-enriching work. I was at the my brother's keeper convening last week in Oakland, MBK Rising, which was a powerful, um, you know, three-day event with people from across the country coming together on behalf of boys and young men of color. And I also do a lot of thinking about white people and whiteness. There isn't a great, you know, there isn't a great secular framework for white people to think about each other in this work right. of compassion. And, you know, I'm having that conversation with folks across the country. What framework can we create? Um, my mission uh, that I took on in 1992 is to work with white people to, whatever the phrase is, I don't have a great one for it, but to end racism, to get beyond racism, to, right. you know, interrogate our whiteness and get to something better, whatever that is, working with other white people to do it, and that's guided my choices for the last 25 years. And, um, and so that continues to be my mission. I just do it not in local government, but in other settings. And how, when you think about you know, a future where those issues improve, they change, the, the population, you know, gains more consciousness, sees things in a different way. You know, what when you think about how that could come about, you know, what types of things do you imagine? You know, because obviously there be there are many ways to go about it. There's, you know, a whole educational curriculum, you know, a, you know, path that, you know, would, could be adopted and taught in schools. You know, we don't teach the history of our own country in a really accurate, open, transparent way with respect to what happened to the indigenous people and certainly slavery um, and the aftermath through Jim Crow, Red Line, all the way to now. It's not like people take, you know, their whole junior year of high school and that's all they study in depth. And so, you know, other areas in terms of public policy or, you know, when you think about big things that can move the needle, um, what types of areas and ideas do you think about that, that can really help? All of the above. Yeah. Um, 
for me, I'm really thinking about how can we convey that information to each other, um, particularly white people to white people, in a way that has compassion about the fact that white people were steeped in our part of the system, right? We were taught systematically, race is a system, and for the system to work, white people have to be a certain way, and whiteness, not white people, whiteness has to operate a certain way on white people for the system to operate well. And so how can we move toward a fuller understanding of our whiteness and how it came in on us and the pain that that has generated for us and letting it go, uh, you know, in consultation with people of color, of course, and indigenous people, of course, so that we have a world in which we cannot predict someone's life chances and life outcomes based on their race or their current level of income or their zip code or the combination of those three things. Right. Um, and there's a lot, a lot comes up for white people when you start talking about whiteness and Robin D'Angelo in the book White Fragility has been, you know, just brilliant about naming what those things are and why and how they serve a racial system. And my, you know, my question with all that information is how do we move forward together? How do we generate an ability to withstand discomfort Right, is one thing, right? As a sober person, I'm very aware of what it's like to be deeply uncomfortable and yet keep moving forward, right? Because when you are an alcoholic, not drinking is deeply uncomfortable for at least a little while. Yeah, Um, And you have to, and you and you build up a skill set. You build right. up a skill set to walk through it. And how do we get that skill set for each other as white people? And how do we not take that skill set away from young people? Right? That's one of the things that gets lost in the in the process of getting whiteness slathered on us is we lose our ability to sit through discomfort. Interesting. Of course, the alcoholic... Um narrative analogy can can sometimes imply a rock bottom so is there is is is, is whiteness still need to hit a rock bottom um for that consciousness that awakening um it seems as though one thing i think a lot about with respect to at least america because this is obviously has a european sort of judeo-christian root in terms of the west um and sort of racial superiority and all the systems and colonialism and whatnot but from an American point of view, uh, that one of the things that at least troubles me is is that we are we're in such a volatile time with with and we're not you know as as strong and as wealthy on a on a median level. Obviously, the one percent is a different matter, but people are feeling more un- insecure and more unsure about the future. Whether it's macro things like climate change or just literally jobs and and uh, you know incomes in terms of real economic value. It's a tough climate to get people to be more empathetic, to be more open, to even, you know, to question themselves because a lot of what you're talking about involves a hard look at this system. And, you know, it doesn't have to be about blaming oneself because, you know, it's been going on for centuries. So it's not like, you know, you, we, we the white people have, you know, of today built it but have benefited from it, have been ignorant of it. 
and facing that is super hard to do. Uh, I'm not saying that like woe is them, but it's just not easy to do because there's blindness. And like you said, it's very uncomfortable and you have to acknowledge these things. And so to do that when you're in a state of, uh, you know, when you're not in a stronger state, I think it makes it even harder. So I think about that a lot with respect to America. I'm not sure if that if that rambling statement makes <laughs> makes a lot of sense, but you know what I'm getting at? I do. I do. I, I think what you're saying is when people are scared, it's hard for them to reach for the human in the other person. Right. If they're scrabbling to solve problems, um, if they're scrabbling to solve day-to-day problems, if they're scrabbling to make sure their lives you know, can meet their basic needs, it's hard for them to say, I'm going to have a big picture view about you know, the goodness of the world right. uh, and the people in it. But here's the thing. Um, you know, that is often what social scientists and other people will say, for example, about people who live in uh, low-income neighborhoods of color in cities. And it's interesting for me to hear that statement said. It's, it's true. And it's interesting to hear it now applied to white people of low and um, medium income. Right. And what that says to me is how much common cause there is and the guts it takes to reach for the human in the person next to you, let alone somebody far away. You know, just start with the person next to you. Just start with the person, I don't know, on the bus. Do you know your neighbor's names? Do you know your, uh, you know, do you know the people who deliver your mail? Um, starting small, what I find is that reassurance of fear comes from connection to other people. It does not come from disconnection. And the myth that individualism and just going at your own is actually the thing that will make you feel best and keep you safest is actually a myth, but it serves to keep the system functioning the way it's functioning, and it serves to um, keep the people who are benefiting from that system benefiting. Right. And so, um, you know, the common thread that I see through all the great leaders who have called us to our better selves is always to see other people as human first. And, um, and to, because what I learned, what I have learned for myself is that anytime I'm forgetting someone else's humanity, and it happens to me, I forget that that person is human. It doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't erode the other person's humanity in any way. It erodes mine. Mm. I lose something in that interaction. They don't. I mean, they may. Let me. I'm not here to say sure. no harms are done. But in terms of my humanity, right. um, I'm the one whose humanity is harmed in that interaction. You know, I talk a lot about how do you do this organizing on a basis of and a platform of compassion, right? That fear and anger and blame, attack and criticism are not a good basis for organizing or sustainable social change. You can get small things in the short run, but the dividend in the long run is resentment and retaliation. And then people are afraid of the resentment and the retaliation that they fear are coming. And so I want to be clear that when I talk about compassion, it is muscular. It has expectation and accountability attached to it. Right. It's not an excuse for bad behavior. Um, but if we're going to move people, it ha- it can't be on the basis of shaming them. No one likes to be shamed. Right. 
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the the he said hearing some of these social scientists slash observations about behavior from people who are living in duress. Yeah, I think it's been interesting to note. I mean, at first, with respect to the opioid crisis, I remember reading a few articles in the beginning of, of sort of when that story sort of caught life and thinking, wow, I'm waiting for that second paragraph that's going to make reference to the fact that this is a health crisis, but, you know, the crack cocaine and other issues in the prior years were, were a crime crisis. And you didn't see a lot of that, I, I felt like, initially in the way that the story was being handled. There's been a lot more of that, and obviously, you know, mass incarceration and the war on drugs and the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander book, and the doc has been a, a growing awareness of the inequities and the unfairness. But it is interesting. I mean, it's 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 a dark hope to say that that more uh, pain and discomfort and problems in these whiter populations could reflectively help uh, a consciousness more broadly in the population for other populations who've been suffering. But I do I do see a little bit of that, you know, um, happening. Because when you when you read someone talk about these white populations that have these issues with the opioid crisis in particular, and then there's the paragraph about job losses and economic opportunity and other various things, you're like, right, not because of their race, uh, you know, and the, the ways that those same exact, uh, you know, contributing factors were either not acknowledged or, you know, not brought into account as much for the other populations in the past. And I think that those two things, those two thoughts can get connected um, and that, that, that might help raise a little bit of awareness in some ways, if that makes sense. Yes. I mean, if you have the eyes to see it, the racism inherent to how the opioid crisis is being handled and how the, you know, some neighborhood drug crises in the 80s and 90s were handled is, is stark. Yes. Um, if we can bank shot some assistance for people of color and indigenous people who were so unduly punished for those issues, that's great. And if we can use it as a moment to show explicitly how racist our systems are designed to be, you know, our systems are designed to get better outcomes for white people than people of color by design from the get go. Right. Uh, and until we redesign them, they will keep getting those results regardless of what the people in those systems feel in their hearts. Um, you know, if, if this can spur us to say, how do we redesign our systems? And if we are conscientious about making sure that we do it for everybody, and if we uh, deploy what John Powell calls targeted universalism um, and not just, oh, great, we'll level the playing field, but right. understand that. We have made it so people come to the playing field from very different places and that we need to invest our resources to account for that. Yes, by all means, I hope we can bank shot something good here. That's a good yeah. – bank shot's a good term because uh, I, I do feel like I've seen some – there's definitely some reporting connecting the dots, uh, you know, that uh, that some of these issues, you know, that either were not factored in or not acknowledged when it was a non-white population are – like you said, reflectively being, you know, thought of in a different way, which is positive. Um, yeah. Let's pivot a little bit to sort of uh, the Me Too um, and and your own, you know, public acknowledgement of, of things that happened when you were young with respect to sexual abuse. And, and obviously you're a woman uh, who's been in politics and, you know, we've been talking about race now uh, for, for the 
first part of the podcast, but the whole gender issue and having gone the country, you know, had our you know political campaign, our presidential campaign that was a painful reminder of of so many things that still are, have so far to go with respect to gender equity and whatnot. Can you just talk a little bit? I mean, that's a rambling that's a rambling intro to to a whole section of of things to talk about. But I'm sure you have many things to say about that about the issue, both in terms of your career battling in in the boys club of politics and uh, just what's happening in the culture um that's my rambling intro into uh, <laughs> into this into this big area which i'm sure you have many many thoughts uh, about yeah i mean it's um it's a tough topic to talk about for a lot of people and uh, i totally understand that and it is out there making people uncomfortable a lot which i both Flawed, and I hope people are using it to build up their ability to live through and get to the other side of discomfort. I um, So indeed, I am a survivor of childhood sexual assault. I was a, a sexually abused for many years by adults I wasn't related to outside my family. And I told no one until I got sober, like zero people, precisely zero people mm. until I got sober. When, and I got sober at 19. The abuse started when I was eight. And, um, you know, and I've been healing from that for 29 years. I've been doing healing work very conscientiously, very consistently for 29 years, uh, almost 30 years now. And so when I made the decision in 2017 to be public about the fact that I was a survivor, this was before Me Too. Um, this was before any of that was really popular publicly, but I had come to a point in my life where I knew, you know, I had done the healing from it. I was busy keeping other people's secrets. I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't feel like it was a secret of my own. And I had a, a woman come to my office who had been raped on the University of Minnesota campus, and she had had a terrible experience with the Minneapolis Police Department around it and she really wanted to talk to me about it and um and i talked to her and did my best in the remaining time in office this was december of, of 2016 she came to my office and i did my best to do the policy changes needed to make her situation not happen again for anyone else but i also in that moment thought to myself if she had known that the face of the city reflected her that fully would what kind of difference would that have made to how she felt when she walked into my office and what she actually expected from me and right. what she expected me to do? And that was the beginning of me thinking, I just need to speak publicly about the fact that I'm a survivor. It also, I could tell, was holding me back with people. You know, there was a gap between what people could see of me and what they could sense of me. Mm -hmm. Right? And there's a certain reserve in that that people could sense. And I think with men leaders, that gap they will fill with leadership qualities, right? Oh, he's, uh, you know, clearly a thoughtful leader and, and very steady at the helm. Right. And with women, they fill it with other things, right? They fill it with sexism. And so I figure if the people are going to be filling that gap uh, with something, they might as well fill it with the truth. And so I told the truth. Um, and, it, and it really did, in many ways, set me free. Um, I, I became much more loose as a speaker and a communicator because I wasn't worried you know I think there was some part of me that somewhere in the back of my brain I was worried people were going to find out uh, and I was like who cares if they find out 
Right. Right. It's not, it's not my secret, right? It's somebody else's secret of bad behavior. Uh, and so I was just so free. And that freedom has lasted to today. I've become a better and better and more free speaker over time. And it's easier for me to get close to people I don't know. It's been great. Um, there's a freedom in it. It was also terrifying, right? I did it as an elected official in an election year. Right. People said that I was trying to um, get more votes. Right. And honestly, if you are, if you think that making entire city uncomfortable about child sexual abuse is a way to get votes, you need new advisors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh my God! It is not. Oh, making the entire city uncomfortable is not a great way to get more votes, but it was a great way for me to feel more free um, as a leader and as and as a communicator and as uh, somebody who had to connect with voters. So, I, you know, and then months after that, it really began with Harvey Weinstein and all of this uh, movement and all these heroes and heroines who have just come forward to, to make their case known. You know, at, on one hand, it was very difficult because it was just in my face all the time. But on the other hand, it was so great because I had sibling travelers in this world and I just felt far less alone. And I think it's provided that for a lot of people, which is why we find more and more people coming forward. Right. It also highlighted um, the challenges to due process that we have in this country that, you know, there isn't good due process for a survivor who comes forward, and there isn't a good due process for someone accused. Right. That people either totally, you know, people generally don't believe women survivors in particular when they come forward and they right. don't put a spotlight at all at men survivors. Um, and so we saw some challenges with that in the political realm. But we also, I also realized very quickly that no due process is worse than the jacked due process that we currently have. Because the, you know what loves lack of due process is racism. White women accusing men of color of rape have always been believed. Right. You know, especially if it's a middle-class white woman and a, and a man of color of pretty much any class background. Right. Um, and I don't want to say any. Of course there are women out there who haven't been believed no matter who uh, has has assaulted them. I don't want to sound, but you, you get the point that I'm making. Yeah. If you're going to be believed, if you know, if, if you're going to put odds on on who's most likely to be believed, it's going to be a white woman accusing a man of color. And if you have no due process in that instance, and historically we have not, um, and have been put away for very little, and it was at the heart of To Kill a Mockingbird, which right. uh, white, which white people love. Um, no due process is bad as well because it speaks to our worst angels in other ways. And so what I'm hoping we can do as a country is find a way to an actual due process that will speak to the need. Right. You talked about, you know, earlier you were talking about sort of whiteness in general, the, you know, the sort of, it's almost like whiteness and or you know, racelessness, right? Because the part of the part of the system of whiteness is a system of non-racial, you know, uh, identity in a way. You don't have to think about being white if you're white. You're just able to move through the universe without thinking about it. 
Um, yes, that yes, that is our experience. And that, you talked that's about not how it actually worked, but yeah, that's how we think it works. Yeah. Right, and or or we don't even think about it. And you were talking about sort of getting uncomfortable and the Truman Show, and I, it, I think it's um, there's there's multiple levels to that because in some ways everything you said we could have attacked on the word male to some of those sentences, right? Because mm-hmm. ultimately, from a power and historical control, and um, you know, again moving through the universe in a certain way, that extra level of white maleness is another, you know, if it's a, if it's a cake, that's another layer up the cake in terms of this system. And uh, getting uncomfortable, recognizing, you know, the uh, all the challenges. I mean, we had, I had Sally Krawcheck on the show, and she was talking about studies, you know, the talk about, and you just mentioned well, how people fill in those gaps, right, with a female leader with these more negative associations while the male leaders given other, you know, descriptions. And uh, she was talking about studies that, that talked about people's reactions to strong women, and even the word disgust literally coming up. And, uh, you know, so how do you, when you think about that, especially someone who's moved in the political realm, um, it just feels like that's a whole nother layer, even within, within just the gender space where this, uh, you know, treating people differently, the unconscious bias, all these things are, are, are just massive and, and global, really. Uh, we think of the famous Yoko Ono quote. I mean, just uh, that is uh, outside of, of, of the dynamics of, of, of you know, sexual assault and, and the lack of due process, even just in general, the workplace, the political sphere. Uh, that's a whole other uh, uh, general global issue. You know, I have been out of office for 14 months, and I have been able to see even more clearly in the intervening 14 months some of the sexism I was up against than I could see while I was in the middle of it. And while I was in the middle of it, I did my best to see what I could, knowing it had to be there. You know, I had the experience, um, you know, at some point, when I became mayor, and when you run for legislative office as a woman, it's one thing. When you run for executive office as a woman, the quality and the quantity of the sexism coming at you changes dramatically Mm. Um, because you are at that point an executive, a decision maker. Um, You know, when you're in a legislative body, it plays to you in some ways – you know, the sexist stereotype and how, and the sexist training of women as, you know, we're just more collegial and we work right. together. And that's an advantage in a legislative body, but nobody knows what to do with it in executive office. Um, so I was mayor a few months when I realized that there were not, there were some staff and, and consultants who weren't doing what I asked when I asked them to do it. Right. And if, and I had seen, you know, the mayor before me was a man and I had, you know, been an ally of his and worked to support him on the city council, et cetera, et cetera. And I had seen, well, he's the mayor. People just do what he says. Oh right. My God. And so I realized, I realized a little bit of it was when men ask for something or when men say, you know, this should happen, they started at maybe, I don't know, 60% of intensity. Their intensity is at a 60% level, and people say, yes, uh, that level of intensity I, I take, and yes, I will do what you say. And as women, we are trained 
to start at 40% of intensity. Hey, if it's not too much trouble, could you right. please just do this thing over mm-hmm. here? And then people don't do it. Right. When you're in the, uh, what I realize is that sometimes people just don't do it. And so then I would ask at a 60% level of intensity, you know, I would ask the way that a man would ask. And still people would not do it. So then I had to go to a 75 or an 80% level of intensity. Hey, I've asked you for this thing twice. I need it by Monday. If not, I'm going to have to talk to so-and-so. It's so so, You know, you have to ratchet yep. up the intensity. And at that point, they may or they may not do it. Your chances are better that it will actually get done. Right. But at that point, you are a bitch. Right. Right? That's yep. that, you know, you've had to ratchet up the intensity and they're like, whoa, 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 why are you being such a jerk? Right. Um, and so that was a big lesson to me about, you know, there's no right level of leadership for women. There's no, there's no smiling just the right amount. There's no leading just the right amount. Right? It's a double bind. It's not a double standard. Yep. Um, you're either leading too much or too little. There's no just right. And you have to navigate that as a woman all the time, you know, in addition to everything else that comes in. Right. Um, if you are leading something, you have to navigate people's, you know, desire to, um, you know, people's desire for you to be their kind, gentle mom. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's so deep, and right? I, it's so These yeah. things are so deep across our biology, our culture, our history you know, thousands of years in the making. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I saw that with the precinct occupation as well, because uh, tragically there was another shooting across the river outside of St. Paul and the protests took place in St. Paul. Uh, you know, Philando Castile was shot and killed. Um, and, you know, protesters in Minneapolis, demonstrators in Minneapolis kept asking me to show my feelings more. And they literally said, you can watch video of this. Are you even human? Don't you even care about what happened? And it is true that when I get scared, uh, like many white people, when we get scared, uh, we freeze up a little bit. Our faces stop moving. That is true. Um, But this went above and beyond. It was like, do you even care? We need to know how you feel. We need you to tell us how you feel. And I will say that the mayor of St. Paul was never once asked that question. No one asked him, do you even care? Why aren't you showing your feelings more? Why aren't you crying? Are you even upset about this? No one asked him that. Mm. And um, that difference is pretty stark to me. Yeah, you you talked about that we don't have a secular framework to even understand whiteness. It feels like, like you said, there's also a lack of a, I don't know if framework's the right word, to to sort of... um, allow for uh, and embrace, you know, female styles of leadership and success across the culture, right? Uh, yes. Yes. I. Um, there are, again, there are bank shot ways that people have figured it out, right? right? There are a lot of women in legislative bodies now, city councils, state legislatures, Congress, there are more women. Um, not than ever, right? Our numbers went down for a few years. But, you know, women are in, in those bodies, um, but it's cracking that code on executive leadership. You know, women mayors, it's a small crew, especially in the big cities. Uh, women governors, 
uh, and and the challenge of electing a woman president. All of the tools of sexism were used against Hillary Clinton. Every single one of them. And they made some new ones up. Yeah. They made some new ones up. You know, that is true. Regardless of what else you, what, regardless of whether or not you like Hillary Clinton, the people, many of the people who opposed her were more than willing to use the tools of sexism to oppose her. Oh, for sure. Are you, I mean, you know, you, you talked at the very beginning of our conversation vacillating between, you know, on a good day, one feels hopeful, and then on a bad day, it feels like things are slipping backwards. You know, with respect to at least the specific realm of women in politics, are you feeling, you know, more positive about where things are headed at the moment? Nationally, I love that there are so many people in the race on the Democratic side. Yeah. And I love that it's very diverse, that there are women, people of color, um, you know, uh, Mayor Pete from South Bend uh, is is gay and running, which is fantastic. Uh, he's also just really great in general, but he's, also, he's a personal friend of mine. And I, I encourage people to check him out. But I'm just really encouraged by the diversity of the, of the crew, which is giving people real choice. And at the moment, it means that those tools of racism, those tools of sexism are hard to use against any one candidate since right. there's a bunch of, you know, yep. there are a bunch of people of color. There are a bunch of women. Um, you know, the tools of homophobia, I think, are going to get used against Pete a lot. Um, but, you know, because there's not another openly uh, GLBTQ person running that I know of. Um, but I am encouraged by the numbers and the diversity. I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, for sure. And it means no one, everyone's going to be disappointed with who's choosing. Yeah, right. And, and honestly, I think that's, that's not okay. a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Um, because looking for perfection in our executive leaders is part of the problem on the left. Are you, having, having been through the city council time and mayorality, are you, are you personally done with, uh, with the elected office? I have no intention of running for office again. Yeah. You know, if God comes down with stone tablets and says, you have to run for this, I would, I would have a conversation. (laughs) My entire life is being set up to not run for office again. And I think you can tell in part by how frank I've been being with you. (laughs) Yeah. No, I hear you. Right. You said freer speaking, right? No no calculating. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm hopeful uh, because the one thing that you obviously, you know, you want is you want more and more people to get involved in politics and yes. uh it's such a tough racket with respect to your personal life and and the way that campaigns happen and um that uh you know it, it certainly certainly has felt like for many many years that there was you know nothing happening from a broad systemic sort of political cultural point of view that would be moving things in the right direction but rather in the wrong direction right common talk to say, gosh, you know, why would you want to go into politics? It's thankless and so painful. Um, how, how do you see that issue? Obviously, you were in it for a while. Um, you sort of did, you did your duty. Um, but do you feel like, you know, we're going to see um, that, the, that the landscape is getting better to get people, because obviously we need more and more talented, passionate people to get involved to, to change the system? I love politics and I encourage people to serve. The, price, the personal prices of admission for local government are not as high as people think. Right. If, you, if you are assessing your run for school board against the rigors of running for president, you're making the wrong comparisons. 
it does ask a lot of you. It asks the best of you to run for office, to talk to your neighbors, to learn about your community, to say where you stand on something, to withstand disappointment and criticism. It's not a thankless job. People thank you a lot. Yeah. They also just criticize you a lot. Right. And people see the criticism. Uh, it's an amazing, sanctified process, and it is a holy and sanctified uh, vocation and avocation, and I encourage people to do it. If, if all you ever did was run for city council or run for school board or be in your state legislature, that's amazing. That's important. And honestly, uh, for people on the left, that's how the right build up their bench in the 80s. Right. They, they took over school boards. They took over county boards. They took over city councils. They took over state legislatures, and look where we are. Right. And the left gets to build up its own team on the local level as well. Um, some people do want to run for higher office. My entire adult life has been spent in local government, and that was always my aspiration. And people thought I had higher aspirations, which I, you know, you that's another double bind. If you deny it, you know, you're just as in much trouble as if you confirm it. Right. Um, and so uh, I, it can get ugly, especially at these higher levels. Um and if you walk into, you got to walk into it knowing a little bit about who you are. Right. And you got to look yourself in the eye uh, sometimes and say, you know, am I willing to do the right thing here as opposed to the expedient thing here? Uh, but it's an amazing ride, and I recommend it for people, and we need people to run. Indeed. And I'm going to say that twice for women because women uh, need to be asked to run far more often than men do. When women run, we win at the same rates men do. We don't run as much as we need to be asked, or we don't think of ourselves as somebody who could run and win. And any women out there, please run. That might be that's a that's a good uh, that's a good closing closing <laughs> beat. I think <laughs> any women out there, please run. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to just flip the whole thing. Let's just you know, let's just Quit. flip it. Just take the whole gender numbers and just flip them. Let, you know, let, let, let women run the world for a while would be a, probably be a lot better off. Yeah, well, for a little while. But read the book, The Power, and then think about it. Got it. Well, Betsy, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. My thanks again to my guest, Betsy Hodges. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.